amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. It's showtime, folks. Welcome and buenvenue. Welcome to Real Talk, a movie podcast which covers a new release and selected movie news with a revolving cavalcade of guests only on the We Made This Podcast Network. My name is Nick Chandler, your master of ceremonies, host and everything in between. And joining me today is my co-host of the Keen Atomic podcast, Danny Valu. Hello, Nicholas. Hello. Before we get going on this week's episode, uh, please follow us on Twitter at RealTalkWMT. The We All Made This network is on at We underscore Made This. And please review and drop us a rating. Really, really helps us get the show out there. So this is a bit of a landmark episode in that it is my final episode as showrunner of Real Talk. Made the decision recently to stand down um, showrunning duties uh, of Real Talk due to other commitments. Um, can't really can't really give you guys what you deserve in terms of new releases every week with covering new release, you know, covering the newest and latest movies. So yeah, that's kind of where we're at. And you'll notice no, you'll notice that the episode title is basically saying that we're gonna review the film All That Jazz, which is not from 2023, it's from 1979. And that is because I've decided to kind of go out on my own terms by talking about a film I love. A film that is all about endings as well. But before we're going to go into that, um, we're going to talk about some new releases, a couple of new releases. And yeah, Danny, um, how's it going since last time I had you on? Oh God, I can't even remember when when was the last time we were on, and what did, was it? Blonde was that the thing that we talked about? I think we had was it was the sight we've had sight and sound list decision to leave, blonde. Yeah, I'm sure there was another one since then. I'm not sure. <laughs> My mind's just gone blank. Yeah, my mind's gone gone completely blank as well. But, yeah, good. I'm good. Lots of things, lots of plates spinning in the air, like like yourself as well. So, uh, appreciate your decision to step down because, you know, you know, you have to know when you can't give a project your full attention and your best. You must do what's best for you and also best for the listeners yeah it means that it, it's a it's, it's a decision that was kind of a little bit hard to make because I, I have enjoyed doing this but at the end of the day you know our podcast keen atomic we're getting ever closer to 100 episodes 
we've got a really exciting season four that we're in the middle of recording and you know we'll be releasing the episodes for that soon and then we've got something exciting planned for after our episode 100 which is a case of why i really want to devote as much attention to that as possible because that is something which me and you have been working on on and off for a good year or so i'm never going to get rid of you am i you keep trying to. <laughs> you keep trying to. And then, you know, I've I've got other things going on. I'm a photography's kind of getting a bit more outside interest than what I was anticipating. And I've got my own creative projects on the go, you know, that I, I want to pay full attention to. And, you know, something has to give. And I felt that Real Talk is is was the right thing for me to leave because I feel like there's somebody out there on you know either on the WMT network or or somebody else who is yet to join the WMT network that could do a a much better job than I than I've been able to do and that's just that's just me being self-deprecating but uh, as usual as usual but yeah um I on before we kind of get going with you know the, the things I do want to thank everybody all the guests that have come on to uh, real talk and my time everybody's agreed to come on and talk about the latest movies and I also want to give special thanks out to Tony Black, the producer and of and head honcho of We Made This, who gave me the opportunity last year to get going with Real Talk and take over and kind of do my own thing. And uh, I've been really thankful for his support. And yeah, teaching me teaching me lessons has pretty much been a, a deep end experience. It's a different experience to what we've had on on Keen Atomic, but it's one that I've kind of really enjoyed and learned a lot from on that note do you want to talk about some latest releases let's do that so should we go sort of chronologically speaking so renfield which uh is if nobody knew it was the nick cage as dracula movie that was announced a movie directed by chris mckay Starring Nicholas Holt, Nick Cage, Aquafina. It's a brief synopsis. Having grown sick and tired of his centuries as Dracula's lackey, Renfield finds a new lease on life, and maybe redemption when he falls for the feisty, perennially angry traffic cop, Rebecca Quincy. So, Danny, what did you think of Renfield? I thought, well, I enjoyed it slightly more than I thought I would. It was very silly and funny at times, very gory, very hammy acting from Nicolas Cage, but we all expected that. I did not expect to enjoy Nicholas Hall's performance as much as I did, and Aquafina is always a breath of fresh air. I think she's brilliant in most of the roles I've seen her in. And I, when I, when I sat down to watch it, I had not, I, I didn't have any idea that it, she would be in it. So that was a surprise for me. So yeah, I, I think I gave it three out of five on Letterboxd. It was, it was fresh, I thought. Although, yeah, not, not great, but it was, it was fun. Yeah, it's not gonna. It, it, I, I, I very much the same kind of opinion. Gave it three 
Well, those are the three, three and a half stars on, on Letterboxd. You know, it's not it's not going to break any kind of revelation. It's not going to break anything new, new, new grounds, anything like that. My my biggest fear was this, was that it was going to waste the opportunity of Nick Cage playing Dracula. And I'm mm. really happy that it didn't do that. No. We got some... It's, it takes place in a universe where everybody knows about Dracula and it's not like we have to introduce people to the rules of the vampire and all this kind of thing. It's like everybody is aware of who Dracula is yeah. and it kind of allows the movie to kind of breathe a little bit more in its own little weird universe. It did feel it, it felt a bit like a bit of a mess a little bit. It, it didn't. It felt as though there were almost too many fingers in the making of it almost and it was it was a bit chaotic but i yeah. think you you know suspension of disbelief i mean you have to just take it with a pinch of salt everything but it was it's funny. funny i thought it was it was it was not great cinema but like you said seeing nicolas cage i think he, how long he it's been decades since he wanted to play this role and he was obsessed with it at one point or another so finally seeing him sink his teeth into it oh, oh sit yeah. down daddy get oh, yeah. out oh yeah <laughs> i just had to i just had to i'm sorry <laughs> I'm, I'm kerry grant at the moment pointing at the door get out <laughs> i'm sorry not sorry but yeah it was it was funny and yeah yeah, a bit brainless, bit, you know, Sunday afternoon, hungover, piece of cinema kind of thing. It's funny that you said it felt fresh for you, because, I mean, for me, it felt like it belonged in 2009. Something a bit OTT, high concept done on a bit of a smaller budget. I found it really kind of heightened, a bit of fun, quite surprisingly gory uh, in a mm. in a fun way. And I thought it was kind of a it's a solid way to spend ninety minutes. Um and that's yeah. the key thing. It's ninety minutes long and it, it's it's pretty it's alright. It's not offensive in any way. It doesn't overstay its welcome and I mean I would recommend people see it if like I'm not gonna recommend it to everybody, but I'm gonna say to, you know, my brother or me and my friends or something and be like, Oh, do you wanna see that Nick Cage Dracula film? It's actually a bit of fun, you know, and that's kind of more than I have to say about most films that uh, like this so that was Renfield uh, the other film that Danny has seen that I want to talk about is Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 which directed by James Gunn starring Chris Pratt, Zoe Saldana Dave Bautista, Karen Gillan, Pom Clemente, Vin Diesel, Bradley Cooper Sean Gunn, Will Poulter, Elizabeth Dilbeck I'm, I'm and uh, the villain, uh, the high evolutionary, is uh, Chukwudi Iwuji. Probably butchered that name. Danny, you're not the biggest Marvel aficionado. You're not as you know deep into it as I am. But no, I, I... am I right? In th am I right in thinking you like the Guardians films more than the others? Well, I think so. Because they don't, the first couple of, the first one, for instance, didn't really take itself too seriously. So you had the, it, it felt a bit like Thor Ragnarok for me. Because it had the same kind of humor. 
like were quite silly and quite like not taking itself too seriously. And this one went a bit further in that it kind of went, why don't we start pulling at the heartstrings a bit and let's do a backstory of Rocket because who knows about him and it could be interesting and also it could be quite inclusive and you know so it worked I think it did I think it it definitely like it better I don't even remember the second one that much and I think I've seen the second one more than the first one from the second one I think I remember the opening credits because you had baby Groot and he was very cute but other than that, I don't even... Oh, yeah, it was the Kurt Russell, wasn't it? It was Kurt Russell, yeah. Oh, God, God. yeah, yeah, when well, he was God. God God himself, yeah. That was silly, because he's like, oh, yeah, I felt... it broke my heart when I put that tumour in her, and I'm like, oh, God, just who wrote this shit? <laughs> <laughs> but this one was um, fairly different, maybe, although still very long. I thought it was too long. Two and a half hours. Yeah, it could have been less than two hours, I think. But it has you have to have the space extravaganza, don't you? You have to have the CG par excellence. So it just... For someone who doesn't really appreciate that sort of thing, I'm like, you just get to the point. Let's just see more of Rocket. But the Rocket and his friends segment was very heartbreaking, I thought, and good, good writing. And yeah, and I really, this is going to sound really bad, but I don't like Chris Pratt's character in this. I don't like him in general. I think he's the worst of the heroes. He's just very boring. And I, I was kind of hoping he would die. So, yeah, I was a bit disappointed that he did not die. I very much felt as though going into this with my brother, we basically sat down and we literally looked at each other and was thinking, well, who are they going to kill off? Um, I'm not going to give away any spoilers. Yeah, I'm not going to give away any spoilers, but that's kind of how it felt in that this film was very much a finale to this team. I don't know if we're going to get another Guardians of the Galaxy like in the next few years. Uh, I don't know. But it's this very much this is the end of this team. I mean, Dave Bautista himself has come out and said that he's not going to do any other of these. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, from what I can gather, I think Zoe Saldana's kind of done with it. Um, Karen Glynn kind of feels like she's almost done with this. And same with, you know, everybody kind of feels as though they're ready to move on from the whole Marvel thing and the ending of it kind of feels as though, you know, they're setting up for saying, okay, you know, this is the end of that team, but we'll see what happens next as it, as it was this, if, if James Gunn very nearly didn't get to make this for people that know the backstory, some tweets popped up on, on the internet that he wrote years and years and years ago and the right ring press jumped on it pressured Disney to fire him who Warner Brothers then jumped on and was like okay we're going to hire James Gunn uh Disney eventually realized their mistake after every single cast member of the Guardians franchise was just like we're not going to return if James Gunn doesn't come back uh which then 
forced Disney's hand to, to bring him back and issue a half-assed apology when they shouldn't have got rid of him in the first place because, you know... What was the wants... scandal? Uh, it was basically some tweets about... Um, it was like making... It was like... It was like it was dark humor. It's like making fun of like pedophiles and like child. It's a weird mm. kind of thing. Anyway, the right wing press who because they they kind of d- dislike James Gunn anyway because he was very active on Twitter against all of that. He was he, I don't know if you remember he was very vocal against the whole you know tri- Trump Marga you know yeah. thing and you know they jumped on it and basically pressured Disney into firing him which this shouldn't have happened anyway because you shouldn't be bowing down to stupid idiots like that especially when james gunn held his hand up and said you know i made a mistake back then you know when i'm learning mm-hmm. from it kind of thing so anyway that's all in the past but it felt you know we ne- we ne- very nearly didn't get this and i'm glad that we did because like i said this is probably it feels as though this is the end of the mcu that we started off with this is mm-hmm. almost you know this this team started off in 2014 it was very much something new in the mcu this these were all d-list superheroes in the comics and like it was kind of refreshing is refreshing to kind of get that and i feel the way the way marvel was kind of going it it just this feels as though it's it's truly the end of this MCU that that we started off with, and I thought I thought that every character kind of gets the fitting send off. Uh, Nebula, who I never thought would become my favorite character, is now my favorite character. I thought Mantis, Pom Clementif as Mantis, is the film's secret weapon. She's absolutely fantastic in this, and her. Her chemistry with Dave Bautista is just amazing, yeah. the way they bounce off of each other. And I thought Chiwakudi Uiji was utterly fantastic as the Hive Evolutionary, a man who apparently has done loads of Shakespeare in theatre, and you can really see that because he nails yeah. that kind of... That, hammy. That persona. So good. He's very hammy, but he's, he's good. It in, was good. It's the, the good kind of the ham. Top. Yeah. It's... It's the good kind of ham. You would want to eat what he's serving, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Can I just say one thing? Go on, go for it. I really love Will Poulter. And he was brilliant in this. And there was one... At one point, there was a thing that he does. So his physicality, the way he conducts himself. It made me think of Buster Keaton. And I was like, maybe he could play Buster Keaton in, in a biopic. Instead of Rami Malek. Instead of... Do you remember that? There's a scene where everybody's hu- hugging themselves. Everybody yeah, does like he- a big hug, group hug. And he kind of stands up and he's looking and he's like, oh, okay. So he kind of goes over and just hugs everybody too. And that that moment, I'm like, yep, he could do physical comedy very, very well. He's very expressive. Yeah, I thought Will Porter, like Adam Warlock is the character that, you know, was kind of built up and I don't want to say he was wasted, but it was like the time that we got with him, I felt was more than enough 
for that character and I thought it was a really good introduction and I thought Will Poulter really did a good job and I, I'm sure we're going to see more of him because Will, Adam Warlock is a, is like a big character in the comics so I think you know I think we're going to see more of him which is you know good whenever that happens yes yeah so I you know I think I think you know this is it's it's a good it's a good it's a good movie maybe yeah you're right maybe it's a little bit too overlong but the sequences with Rocket and his friends in the cages were absolutely heartbreaking and yeah you know a little bit I was you know first kind of a little bit creeped out by the rabbit with the spider legs and then the, the walrus with the wheels but then it it then it became something really tragic it, it, it really was. hits you really hard and you really feel that kind of moment and you know Rocket is very much you know it's it's his story and it's Never thought at the, at the start of twenty, you know, twenty fourteen, when you'd said, "Oh yeah, there's this new movie out. It's got a talking tree that says I am Groot and a talking raccoon." You know, you'd say that to the people, and they'd be like, "What are you smoking something?" But now, you know, <laughs> nine years later, we've got this movie which is making all the money, and its central emotional arc is about the talking raccoon, and it nails it. Uh, any other things on Guardians before move on? No, um, I think that's it for me on this film. So the only other film I wanted to talk about latest release I wanted to talk about was Evil Dead Rise, which I know you haven't seen. I have um, not. But I've just got just got some little notes on it, just in case anybody's kind of wondering, uh, interested in what my notes on Evil Dead Rise, because I don't know if it's no knowledge on this podcast, but I'm a massive Sam Raimi fan. Danny knows this. Shocking, shocking! Yeah. I did not see this coming. You did wow. not see this coming, no. No. Uh, did not no. did not strike you that I'm a massive Sam Raimi fan. Didn't you make me watch Evil uh, Evil Dead Two? I did make you watch Evil Dead Two. Yeah, you did. We watched it on. Was it a Halloween podcast? It was. Um, yeah, it was paired with Night of the Living Dead, if I remember rightly. Oh God, yes. That was a fun one. <laughs> so the. Th- I'm a massive Sam Raimi fan and a massive Evil Dead fan. The the first Evil Dead movie I watched when I was like 16, 17, and it really stuck with me. Evil Dead 2 is my favourite of the series, and me and my brother constantly quote Army of Darkness on a regular basis. It's probably the movie that me and my brother just talk about on multiple occasions because we just find those lines just so funny to repeat to each other. I thoroughly enjoyed the 2013 Evil Dead movie that came out, uh, directed by Fede Alvarez, which, if you haven't seen, and this goes for Danny as well as everybody else, if you haven't seen the 2013 one, it is an excellent horror film on its own feet, and it's an excellent Evil Dead movie. Really does justice to that name. And... Okay. So Evil Dead Rise is not a sequel to the 2013 version. And nobody from that film appears in this. It's very much its own thing. The Book of the Dead once again looks a lot different. It's directed by Lee Cronin. And the film takes place in a high-rise building, which is a really interesting idea for an Evil Dead film because the whole point of Evil Dead is it's the, a playoff of the idea of the cabin in the woods not to be confused with the actual film, The Cavern in the Woods, which is in itself a play on Evil Dead. 
And yeah, I really liked this version, Evil Dead Rise. I love the little touches of Raimi thrown in as a homage. But it felt as though the film was almost constrained by the idea of it being set in a high-rise building rather than kind of doing something new with the concept or something bold with the concept. It's it has its moments where it's very it's it's definitely an Evil Dead film in 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 name because of how it presents gore. There's a couple of moments where I was laughing because it's that kind of violence, it's that kind of gore where you. You're you're laughing at it. I mean, Danny, you've seen Evil Dead too. You know, kind of know what I'm I'm talking about here. Yeah, yeah. And there's a opening section which is with it felt almost feels as though it's a studio add-on. I don't think it is. I think it's actually there in a script, but it feels as though it's a little bit out of place. But it's kind of good that it is there. The film is is definitely an Evil Dead film. There's some really <laughs> there's some really great positive trans representation in this movie in the <laughs> there's this there was this a th- twitter thread ages ago um i can't remember who it was where it said that in order for there to be a good representation of 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 gay characters gay lesbian characters trans characters they have to be bad people they have to make stupid mistakes as often as their straight straight counterparts and here the trans the trans the character who is trans in this film is not they're not named they're not outed to be trans it's very much like it's we are seeing this as a matter of fact it's not called out but if you are aware of it then you are aware of it you know you kind of see it and you know they make the same mistakes that any other you know counterpart in a normal horror film would make they're not and it, that's a really kind of it's a positive representation. It's a positive representation because they are given equal footing. They're not. Their character is not because not because of their sexuality or because of their orientation or anything like this or how they identify. It's not because of their race. It's not anything because of that. It's purely based on their personality. It's based on them as a character, which is, you know, how you should be writing characters. So on that note, that you know, that's great and. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's it's pretty good. I thought I probably won't be rewatching it anytime soon, and but I, if I'm being honest, I prefer the sheer brutality of the 2013 movie, a movie where it literally rains blood. Oh, and it's incredible. Yeah, I don't think I'm gonna watch that one. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's it's amazing. It has an incredible performance, uh, central performance from. Oh god, I can't remember her bloody name. Oh, she was in that um TV series as well. I can't remember oh, her name. that one. Yeah. Uh-huh. The girl, what was her name? It's going to bug me. I don't know what TV series you're talking about. No, but you know, do you know the name of the girl that I'm talking about? No. She was in um she was in that show. Uh Jane Levy. Yeah. Yeah, but you Jane say Levy, she was in sorry. that show. That it doesn't give me anything. Yeah, that girl yeah, who was be. in that show. Yeah, she was in that show. Suburgatory. That was it. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, anyway, she's great in it, and I, you know, it the te- the the poster for that says the most terrifying film you'll ever experience. I don't think it's that, but I definitely think it's 
worth a watch and it's one of the most enjoyable experiences I've had in the cinema. So okay. that's my notes on Evil Dead Rise. Shall we move on now to the actual subject meat of the episode? Let's do it. So we're going to move on now. Do you want to say now. it or do we need to say it? <laughs> so we, we're going to move on now to our review of the film All That Jazz. Candy Casey, very good. You're going to do it again, Victoria. Stop smiling. It's not the high school play. Count. Oh, five, six, seven, eight. One. All that work. Oh. Stand on your right foot. Point your left toe. Drop that shoulder. All that oh, pain. That's not too hard, is it? Oh boy, do I hate show business. All that glitter. jokes is what I need. Yo, you love show business. That's right, I love show business. All that love. I'll go either way. It's showtime, folks. All that jazz. It's showtime, folks. It's showtime, folks. I'm going to open the episode with that and there's not a thing you can do about it. Uh, it's a brief synopsis. Joe Gideon is at the top of the heap, one of the most successful directors and choreographers in musical theatre. They can feel his world slowly collapsing around him. His obsession with work has almost destroyed his personal life and only his bottles or pills keep him going. This film is from 1979. The film won four Oscars, directed by Bob Fosse, starring Roy Scheider, Jessica Lange, Anne Reichlin, Leland Palmer and many, many, many others. This film, if you don't know me, like I said at the start of the episode, this is my favourite movie of all time. It's joint first on my letterbox list with Jurassic Park. That's how much this movie means to me. And this is the second time I've got Danny to watch this. So, yes. Danny, you want to relay what kind of what you thought of the movie first time around and then... Let's see where you're at now, second time, a few mm -hmm. years later. So we could link to, to the episode in the show notes if you wanted to. I uh, I just listened to, to the bits that we recorded on, what was it, a couple of years ago, actually, I think it was. And um, yeah, when you first suggested this film, I, w I didn't know what to expect. And when I watched it the first time for the Kinotomic podcast, I understood its caliber it has great craft to it it's beautiful it's like you said it's been nominated for i don't know 10 oscars won four it was nominated for best picture best actor best director best writing best cinematography it won best art direction best costume design best film editing and best music i remember having a problem with the music which i didn't like with I also didn't like the second time round and I also had a problem with the main character who I thought it was a cad and I still think he's a cad <laughs> I yeah I don't like Joe Gideon he's not a very likable character he's not someone I would sympathize with or very even even relate to on on a certain level because if you were someone who was passionate about their work to the level that he is, having so much distraction around feels counterintuitive. You know, because he smokes a lot, he drinks a lot, he sleeps with a lot of women, he takes a lot of pills. You probably don't see him sleep a lot because he probably doesn't sleep. And that's a bit counterintuitive. 
But some people do function like that, and Bob Fosse himself did function like that because it is a, a semi-autobiographical film. So it's fascinating in a way to watch. And the second time I watched it, I found that fascination with it because it. Now I knew that he was not a character that I was supposed to like or or find any common ground with. So I kind of looked more to the direction and the craft of of the film and yeah i liked it. i i want to say that i liked it more this time around i kind of stepped back stepped back a bit more because as a woman you watch this and you see him being a horrible person to all the women in his life and you're like oh god he's such a horrible person they're just sleazy and just make him dead because this it is um it is a story about this person going to the grave and his flirtation with death more or less so uh yeah i thought i thought better of it this time i if memory yeah. if memory serves i think you were a bit kind of i wouldn't say antagonistic but you were a bit antsy because that we paired it with your one of your favourite films, the Francois Truffaut Day for Night. So, but yeah, you know, that was a comedy, so it was it was slightly yeah. different. That was more like tongue in cheek. It's like yeah, because he says at the beginning and and Day for Night, he says you start off thinking I'm going to make the best picture I can make, and then by the end of it, I'm just going to I I just want to finish the whole thing. I just don't care about it anymore. You know, so you have these big ideals, you start the film with the big ideals, and then you just want to get it over with. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I loved Gouffaut, everybody knows that. And in comparing it to to all that jazz, because in, in, in Truffaut's film, someone, a character even goes to ask, are women magic? And you're like, yeah, ask Joe Gideon that are women magic no they're not women are just there for my pleasure <laughs> so maybe i was antsy because of that because of that comparison maybe you're right and now as a standalone i appreciate it a bit more because the direction is 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 exquisite is brilliant and the dance sequences are very good even though i'm not too keen on the music but the dance the choreography is impeccable you see it and you're like oh god I've missed my vocation. I should have been a dancer. You kind of want to go and, and become a dancer, even though it's too late and you can't lift the leg the way that Anne Ran Rankin does. She's fantastic. But you know what I mean? It's just, it is it is a beautiful film and I can understand why it's your favourite film. Since since our episode, or we recorded that episode way back in 2020, and it was like our 16th episode was it 2020? we ever did. It was. God. It was way back when. Almost three years. Almost, probably three years ago. Almost on the dot. Almost, I'd imagine. It just feels feels so weird to, to think about it that it, we've been recording for so long. Yeah, you just <laughs> you haven't got rid of it yet. Take it easy. <laughs> so, I mean, since since we recorded that episode way back when, we've I've had you watch a couple more. Fosse's Star 80 and more recently Cabaret 
and yes. we've also, both of us have also watched the film Fossi, uh, the series Fossey Verdon, which I think ends up op- opening up more of that backstory. Which I I think you know I I don't think it, I don't think I'm not saying it does the film favors for anybody, but I think it really really it it helps kind of flesh things out a little bit more. Um, it, it does it does put things into perspective a bit more. Particularly yeah. the brilliant, brilliant series Fossil Virgin, which stars Michelle Williams, who is fantastic, and Sam Rockwell, who is an amazing actor and a very, very good dancer as well. So yeah, I really enjoy that series. Yeah, if you have, if nobody, if any here listening haven't seen Fossil Virgin, I really, really thoroughly recommend it. I don't know if it's still on because it aired on BBC, so I don't know if it's still on BBC iPlayer, but. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sure you'll still, you'll be able to find it. But yeah, Michelle Williams is is amazing as as Gwen Verdon, and Sam Rockwell really does. He seems to nail the mannerisms of Fosse, which is not easy. And I think that's something that I've I've kind of come to appreciate more over the years is how much of a good job Roy Scheider does at nailing Bob Fosse's persona. I mean, Roy Scheider wasn't. A dancer you can kind of see that in the final sequence yes. by by life where the camera is like almost cutting around him because it's very clear that he's not able to really to do the moves that you know ben vereen is able to do so effortlessly mm-hmm. so yeah this this film like i said i i chose this film because it's my favorite film and because it's also a film about things coming to an end you know it's it's about knowing that this part of one's life is over and i think you know throughout the film we get you know the the cliff gorman's comedian his monologue about the five stages of grief and it is something that isn't just applicable to death it's also applicable to transitioning from one life to another and i feel that's kind of a good it's a good point for this episode in that you know for me you know i I've made the acceptance that, you know, I've had to kind of give up something that I love doing, but it's also the fact that this also presents a new opportunity for somebody else. And it also means, yeah, like I said, I get to talk about a film that I absolutely adore. Uh, At the release of All That Jazz in 1979, Stanley Kubrick reportedly believed it to be the best film I think I've ever seen. And on this viewing, I think I've noticed this before, but there's a quote where, Joe Gideon asks, "Does Stanley Kubrick ever get depressed?" <laughs> and yes, he does. He did say that, didn't he? He did say that. Yeah. So this this, this film, like you said, it's a, a semi autobiographical movie. It's co-written by uh, Robert Allen Arthur, who who died before the release of the film. This film kind of takes a period uh, in a period of Bob Fosse's life, semi autobiographical. You know, he had a heart attack whilst editing the film Lenny. Uh, which stars Dotson Hoffman and producing the 1975 production of, of Chicago. And it kind of shows the man, it kind of just shows him, I don't know, wanting to be forgiven for everything. And I've got the Sam Wasson book, Fosse, uh, in front of me, which is what the TV series Fosse Verdin is kind of based from. And there is a line 
uh, thing in here about that final sequence. So I'm just going to re read from this. As Fosse was filming the end of Bye Bye Life, in which Gideon rushes into the audience of enemies and loved ones for the final goodbye, he called Cut and peered out from behind the camera. He wanted to look at them, the people he knew. There were hundreds, Annie, Leland Palmer, NY to LA's producers, the strippers in the scene with Keith Gordon. The way they looked at Gideon seemed a lot like love, love for him. He pulled Scheider aside. You know, that must be kind of exhilarating. Yeah, Bobby, it is, Scheider smiled. Why don't you try it? Nah, come on, you'll love it. Scheider cued the band, the music started, and Fosse dashed from the stage into his people, hugging and kissing, thanking and touching. When it ended, they applauded him, a standing ovation, as he headed back to Scheider, back to the stage, trying to catch his breath. Jesus Christ, that's terrific. Yeah, Bobby, it is. And you know, Roy, he's said to have whispered, the best part of them is that they forgive me too. Scheider saw tears in Fosse's eyes. Yeah, Bobby, we do. Aww. Yeah, and... You know, we we see we you know we see at the end in end of Fosse Verdon, you know, he 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 dies, you know, in, in Gwen's arms, you know, the love of his life's arms. Or, you know, one of the many loves of his life, but the woman that's stood by stood by him, you know, from the start. Almost from the start. And, you know, it's a very, very tragic moment when he when he passes away on that street in, in Washington. And I think what the, the final sequence here is it's him, you know, just being able to go, you know, I know I'm going to go out after this and this is how I want to go. Have you, I think I might have asked you this last time, have you seen Fellini's uh, Eight and a Half? I have not. Okay. Fellini's one of those uh, directors whom I've never got around to watching. It's a big blind spot for me. Mm. I've 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 only ever seen uh, I've no I've seen eight and a half and Roma. Uh, the only reason the only reason I ask is because that is also a film which is about the making of a movie and about a film that kind yeah, of yeah. becomes. I've read about it. Yeah, I really um, recommend it. For me, it was just because I, I I did some Italian neorealism like Victoria De Sica and those guys. Rossellini. And Rossellini, thank you. And after that, after watching those movies, it, you have you have the you know surrealist side of the Italian cinema with Fellini, but it just didn't capture me. I've seen some scenes in it, and I'm like, I don't know. I just can you just yeah, bring me back to neorealism. I wanted to watch more Anna Magnani and and less Marcello Mastroianni. There was um, one of the performances that really stuck with me on this viewing, and, and I know she always. I know it's every now and then, you know, I, I'm watching, rewatching this a movie, and I, I see the film that I've seen before, and so it really stands out. Is um, Elizabeth Foldy who plays um, his daughter in the movie? Um, yeah, an actress who literally this is her only movie. Is it? And, I've been meaning yeah. to ask you because she's. You can see she's becoming a good dancer as well. She has the good dance moves and she's a good actress. So I did wonder what happened to her. Yeah, so she was um she was a uh, a twelve year old student at the School of American Ballet, and they screen tested her um with uh, Richard Dreyfus, who was originally going to play Joe Gideon before uh, Dreyfus mm -hmm. and and Fosse ended up deciding that you know probably not for the best, and and his Jaws uh, co star ended up taking over the role. And 
the thing that they had was it was down to two girls apparently and this is from the the, the wasson book um to break the tie fossey gave them a single very little very big task will you light my cigarette he asked the first girl kneeling down to her height and putting a cigarette in his mouth without thinking she scratched off a match as swiftly as tatum o'neill and paper moon after thanking her boss fossey brought in foldy liz they called her and asked her to do the same with the lit match in one hand, she took the cigarette out of his mouth with the other and then touched the cigarette to the flame like they were two tips of fingers. Then she handed the Fosse back his cigarette. You got the job, he said. Hmm. So, Interesting. It, yeah, it, it's this. I mean, I, I don't really want to keep reading things from this book because I'm not going to do it any justice uh, for a start. There was... Uh, kind of a little bit about the fact that uh, John Lithgow was brought in almost at the last minute to play kind of an amalgamation of of, key, uh, of Bob Fosse's rivals. And that was one of the things that I really liked in this viewing is there's this uh, lovely seduction scene, let's say lovely seduction scene, but the seduction scene between John Lithgow and that producer. And... <laughs> You know, where they're setting the lights and it's like, it's, you know, it's a seduction scene. We've talked about this. I yeah. just, Lithgow really kind of nails that. And Lithgow kind of relays the fact that, you know, Fossey, even though when he was sat down, Fossey made him kind of drum his fingers. And Lithgow said, you know, even when, even when they're sitting, actors were dancing. <laughs> you know, there's always mm. a choreography with Fossey. Which I think is a really, really, really nice, uh, really, really nice, uh, interesting thing about Fosse is that you know he's very much into the whole idea of control, that letting actors. I don't know that it's kind of really hard to say. Like he is very much very very hands on with things, and we see that element with Joe Gideon. You know he he's very very involved with everything. You know the whole thing with that cutting the the stand up you know, editing that film and the fact that the producer comes in and says, you know, we're like seven months overdue. We'd sent so much yeah, money. Yeah, I love that scene. We have to send this out. And then he sits down and watch it and he goes, oh, it is better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, watching it the second time round, it did make me think, because I remember saying the first time, I did not get him being this creative genius. But second time around, you kind of see it a bit more, but still, you still kind of go, yeah, but the other thing is kind of overshadowing his genius quite quite a bit. And I still stand by that. The... um. And Reichling, you know, said that all that jazz is about showbiz is about showbiz can kill you. Devoting yourself exclusively to your craft is like an all protein diet. You may not be hungry, but you're going to starve to death. You need other things. Bob knew it was going to kill him. It was killing him. And he knew there was nothing he could do about it. He was hooked. That's why I think all that jazz is very moral because it says, don't do this. You'll lose yourself. Um, mm. That's all. That's the last thing I'm going to read from the book, but. You know that there's like a finality to the movie, and it's almost, it's almost, it's like saying, you know, 
show business. I mean, me and you, we we both of us love the movies, and both of us are trying to, you know, get into that world, you know, in different ways. But both of us are kind of, I don't know. It's one of the reasons why I wanted you on for this episode to talk about this movie because since you know, since we recorded our first time three years ago about this film, you know, both of us have kind of taken different paths into trying, you know, move forward you know to get into this idea you know show business basically and yeah i'm not saying just... that this is a, a a tale which is like don't do this but i think it's it's basically it's it's showing the seductive nature of show business and how amazing it is but also the fact that it will it will it will be your life in one way or yeah. another Yeah, the sacrifices are to be made, absolutely, and prices to be paid. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I think Roy Schneider is utterly excellent as, as Joe Giddon. I said this, you know, like he was going to play, originally played part played by Richard Dreyfus, um, but didn't, you know, they felt they weren't right for the role. And, you know, you can kind of see that. Bofossi, you know, he 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 said that he wanted to be the next Fred Astaire, but he couldn't because he wasn't he, he never made it as a dancer. You know, it was because of his his build and his posture. He didn't really have that. So his imperfections really led him to kind of create a style of choreography that we really, really recognise as his. The most telling example of that is the Anne Reinklin performance during that hospital hallucination scene. Like her dance is is the purest of Fossey almost. It's what I think about when we think of Fosse. It's those little movements. It's the, it's the way the body is contorted in this way. It's yeah. It's I love 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 watching that, and you know, like I think Scheider does a real. You know, he doesn't look like a dancer, but he, you know, he does command the screen, and I think, you know, there's something about him, and that it feels as though. You know, he he has he has embodied the the, the role of Fosse. There's a, you know the thing where you know he would literally follow Bob Fosse around, and you know when Fosse would start coughing, then Roy Scheider would start coughing as well to try and get the exact cough correct, which you know, that's <laughs> commitment to the art. Do you? Absolutely. Is was there any moments in this viewing that really stood out for you? I, I mean the dance. The, I really like the the sequence where I think I might have mentioned it before, where the girls are dancing for him. I thought that was just beautiful, and very much undeserved. And you kind of see it on his face that he's like, "What have I done to deserve this? This is, you know, undeserved." And of course, the the other sequence that I I really liked. Which I don't know if I did the first time around because I thought it was just a bit too out there, and no way a, a theatre production would would mount that dance sequence, the very erotic dance sequence in the middle of the film. I think, I mean, it's beautiful, but I don't know if anyone would put that on stage, or maybe they have, and I have no idea about it. I think that's very much like a, almost like a parody of a something joe like bob fossey would have put on almost yeah 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 
Um, I know that they originally planned for to actually show the opening night of New York, LA in the movie. Um, but I think it was like due to budgetary reasons and due to like filming, like timing reasons that they couldn't do it. So a lot of that set work ended up getting reused for Bye Bye Life. And mm-hmm. they a lot of the effort that we saw put into Bye Bye Life, you know, on screen, I think really, really pays off because of that. I th- kind of think the movie... I don't. I think the movie deserved to end on Bye Bye Life being that big production number because we see a lot of setup, yeah. we see a lot of production, we see a lot of behind the scenes. So, you know, we get a lot of the workings behind it. And I think if we were to get that sequence of New York, LA, that first opening night, then I think that would undo the flow of the movie. It's very yeah. much setting up what's to come. I think. Did you under, did you get the relationship? I mean, it's not really like a difficult a difficult thing to think of, but like, did you get the relationship between him and and Angelique, played by Jessica Lang, the Angel of Death? Sorry, get what relationship? I did. Was the relationship clear for you? Because I I can't remember maybe the first time we watched it. I, th- I think yeah, maybe... it was uh, it was very good, very well done. You see it at the beginning, and you see it all throughout. I love the I love the sequence where she kind of starts starts to take off her hat when he has that heart attack at the beginning. Well, not at the beginning, but he it's the beginning of the end kind of thing where he's kind of okay now he's in hospital. So you see Angelique going, okay, we're getting ready. Hats off, you know. And then at the end, she's kind of welcoming him in in her arms, lovingly like the angel of death does yeah the editing in this movie i think is that is i mean alan heim rightfully wrong won an oscar for this and uh, it the editing the way it kind of switches through these different sequences but never loses sight of what the message is and i think few films have ever been as successful as that there's you know an idea that the um film writer matt zola uh put down called fossey time in that this this movie lives on fossey time we see it with the opening montage of the vivaldi and him getting ready for the day and then we also see it with the montage of the 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 sequence sequences whenever like you said we see the angel of death it's you know that the movie lives on this idea of fossey time it lives almost like outside of what we think of as a normal normal chronological timeline if that makes any sense yeah uh he did do a a video essay on on fossey time which i've been trying to find so i can link to it in the show notes but i can't actually find it but i will link to his article about it which i think has a as a has the actual um transcript on on it so i'll link to that in the show notes um as well as the cinephilia and beyond piece on all that jazz which has the screenplay, which is a really, really interesting read. Uh, I think they're one of the early versions of the, the All That Jazz screenplay actually just didn't change any of the names. So Joe Gideon was literally called Bob and Anne Reichlin's character, or Katie Jagger was called Anne and Audrey Paris was called Gwen. And, <laughs> you know, it, it wasn't, it you know, and all the, all these producers were named by name, like Paddy Chayefsky was named as well. Like it wasn't, it, you know 
it was one of those things where it was just like he it's very clear that he's making a biopic about himself and it was just basically going to see if he could get away with it and um and get away with it he did i mean the film made 37.8 million in in box office in 1979 won four oscars and i think is i think is is fossey's best film better than cabaret yeah, I think you you prefer cabaret, don't you? Ish. Ish. I mean, yeah, because it has the historical angle. But if you remember when we discussed cabaret on Kinotomic, I did not very much like Sally because I thought she was just too flaky and not serious enough. Also, I had a problem with the, with the hair. The hair was just terrible. You didn't. It's a recurring thing, but like you don't really like the the main characters, the protagonists of Bob Fosse films. I mean, of yeah, you know, like Star just... Eighty. We're not really meant to like, uh, meant, not meant to like Eric Roberts' character in any way. But like you know, no. I mean, Joe Gideon. I don't think we're meant to like him, but maybe I don't know. Ear on the side of positivity rather than negativity. I don't know. Maybe that's just me and uh, Sally. Yeah, I think you are right with Sally. Like, you know, she's a character that doesn't really help herself. No, she just, she's just too ditty and not strong enough. You know, she's just, she's not even her, the, it doesn't feel like she's the main character. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because she doesn't have that much agency, you know, she's just there. She's very good when she's on stage. When she when she's off stage, she's just making all the mistakes, all of them. Anyway, do you have anything more to say on all that jazz? No, other than yeah, it's it's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant film, and yeah, great. Choreography, great editing, great direction, great acting. You know, I'm I'm happy that you've honestly come round to it, but like a bit more positive than you were last time. <laughs> well, that's what happens when you watch a film for the first time and then you kind of sit on it for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we should rewatch Babylon. <laughs> That was the one oh. that we watched. We did last time. That was now the one we watched last time. Babylon. Oh my <laughs> word! <laughs> Where I kind of ranted for like half an hour. So I'm sorry about should, that. Should we, should we do a little bit of a postscript on Babylon since we're finishing up all that jazz? So I, you know, all that jazz is like I said, my favorite movie, and I think if you haven't seen it, watch it. I'm hoping our conversation about the film has kind of spiked an interest in it. If you haven't seen it, if you have seen it, uh, you know, then, and you didn't like it, maybe, hopefully, you might be able to see something that what we were talking about. And, you know, as Ethel Merman screams out, there is no business like show business, as the body bag is zipped up and wheeled away. <laughs> and yeah. no business like show business. I mean, you know, like you said, it's maybe do a little bit of a postscript on, fil on a film that's kind of sat with both of us since we last saw it is Babylon, uh, Damien Chazelle's movie, which is a film I've probably become more negative on as tight as it's really sat with me. 
and I don't know about you whether you're because you, I mean you you really like you had real issues with that movie. Well, um, I went, I went, I went, I went to it with the historical cap on, and in terms of criticism, I went like, well, that's not good. That 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 was not right. That was, but I do ultimately, I do understand what he tried to make, and I do understand. I'm not dissing those who found it as a masterpiece because it ultimately is not a bad film. It's just a bit too much of it. And the, I mean, like the it, too muchness of it isn't all good. It's like that. I mean, I, I one of my friends just like said that like, oh, he loves like he loves the absolutely he loves Babylon. He loves the opening of it, and I'm just like I was, I was almost exhausted at the opening of it, and that whole thing with, you know, the whole thing with the film and that it it makes, you know, it, it's it's what do they call it like, creating characters which are meant to be other people basically meant to be real life people so we see we see the example of the roscoe rarbuckle in you know thing with him which is shown in in babylon and due to the fact that i'm i've been watching buster keaton's movies because of of the blank check podcast and they talk about you know they've spoken about roscoe rarbuckle and Dana Stevens on the podcast has spoken about what happened with him. I know you have as well. You've told me about what happened with him. And it very much it very much is like a case of he was really messed over by what happened. You know, he it, it didn't... It, it was a, a trial that was almost like a farce, if that makes any sense. It is was, that right? It was, so, three, it was actually three trials. And the first one was 10 to 2 for conviction the second one was 10 to, no the second the first one was 10 to 2 for acquittal the second one was 10 to 2 for conviction and the third one was acquittal uh with a letter of apology f- written by the jurors so, saying something like acquittal is not enough for Roscoe. We feel that a great injustice has been, has been done to him. So basically they said this, but even after after the jurors, well, there was nothing, we found no evidence that he made, he did anything wrong and he should not be uh, blacklisted. Hollywood was like, no, no, we're never going to let him work again. And so they ostracized him. They did. And they did, he did return to cinema, uh, a bit later with under under a pseudonym i think it was william goodrich or will be good and but in for sherlock jr i believe reading biographies and material buster keaton wanted him to direct sherlock jr and he gave him the opportunity to do it but because of what had happened he couldn't do it so what happened, he was on set and he kept, he kept yelling at people and he just had lost confidence in his own ability as a director. But he used to be a very good director. So you could see it in, in the early short films that he did with Buster and he did on his own because he's he was a, a graduate from the Max Sennett School of Slapstick along with Charlie Chaplin. They work, I think they worked together for, on a couple of occasions. So he knew the ins and outs of, of early cinema and he was... He was a good film director, but he just lost all confidence. By 1921, when he when the 
scandal started, he was make he was he had signed with Paramount to make a million a year to make like three three pictures a year, and he was earning most more than any other comedian at that point. Sorry. So that, that we, that yeah, was... no, that's fine. No, that's fine. I mean, it, it's in, it's interesting you say all that because like this is all stuff that Damien Chazelle knew. You know, yeah. the writer, yeah. you know, the writer knew, and so in instead of you know it could have been a chance to use the opportunity the fact that they got this big budget you know feature that a lot of people are going to go see it's going to have i don't think a lot because the film did bomb financially but you know it had a star-studded cast you know people were going to go see it people were going to go talk about it the people that people want so it, it was an opportunity to maybe use that as a as a chance to maybe you know do a bit of fact check or fact relining basically but instead you have the sequence this this moment where that entire thing is shown again and when people question it they're going oh yeah it's in reference to what happened to fatty arbuckle rather than saying oh yeah no this is actually what happened we are using this as an example to show you what actually happened and nothing actually happened went wrong it's mm. it just completely disregards that and the closest the film gets i think to showing what things were really like is that almost that backlot with a couple of things, it was the, the 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 big shooting sequence with Spike Jones and and the you know the the war thing. There was the whole you know the the sound sequence is quite is a good sequence, and then we get the the moment between Gene Smart's journalist and Brad Pitt, where it's you know that that, that conversation. That was good. I really like that conversation. That's what I mean. Both me and you agreed that was probably the best part of the movie. It was. And, and because it, it was more relatable to what we knew of the time because you know the whole idea with him was that he was meant to be an amalgamation of a few characters but specifically john gilbert am i right in saying you are correct so brad pitt's character you got, you is meant got to that be, right now i do think that right yeah john um brad pitt's character is meant to be you know an example you know uh, uh, an amalgamation of a few people but specifically john gilbert an actor who Correct me if I'm wrong, but he was told he, he that the the story goes that he couldn't his sound his his name couldn't translate over the sound pictures because his his voice was it was too high pitched or too it didn't match the, well. the sound pictures. But that's not actually true. He actually had a very good voice. But I think what that Gene Smart sequence does is it recontextualizes it and saying that it wasn't that he was bad for the sound pictures. It was almost as though his time was over. You know, your time that, in that show business was over. Show business. Yeah. Yeah. To, you know, to come full what? circle about the show business theme of, of the episode. It was his time. And also he had made enemies of the wrong people. So he, John Gilbert had made enemies of Louis B. Mayer. Yeah basically who ended his career why are we why are we wanting to go into show business i don't want to go into show business i just want to pretend to be other people for a while <laughs> that's all i want to do and 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 you know be paid for it <laughs> i think you know i i i was i mean trying to like broad theme here but like i i have a very romantic idea of the movies damn movies as uh vin diesel would say 
you know, I watch, you know, my favourite film of the year so far is The Fablemans, which you've not seen yet, have you? I have not. I have not. Has 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 a has a, an incredible performance from uh the most referenced actor on this podcast, Michelle Williams. Um like she's incredible in that movie and they said, you know, it's it's I really, really recommend seeing it. But there's it captures that idea of the magic of the movies and there's that final sequence, which I'm not gonna say what actually happens but if you've seen the movie you know what i'm talking about there's this final conversation that happens on on a back lot of a studio between um the character sammy and and somebody else and it really i don't know it just gives that warm feeling inside that you know that i want i want to <laughs> i want to live you know i want to say live that life but want to have an experience that is uniquely my own but within that world and all that jazz is you know it takes place in the in you know musical theater world but even so like it was the first movie that made me realize what movies were outside of blockbusters i saw it for the first time when i was like 15 16 and you know i spoke earlier about Evil Dead, I saw that when I was 16. You know, those are two movies which I have hold in yeah. really, really high regard because they're not they're not Jurassic Park. They're not the Spielbergian stuff that I had seen. You know, they were something wholly different around about the same time as when I first saw Kinji Fukasaku's um, Battle Royale. Uh, have you seen Battle Royale? No. No. No, um right. I'll I'll add that to the list. <laughs> but um oh. Battle Royale like Battle Royale is a, a Japanese movie which made me think wow like this is completely unlike anything I've ever seen. So in the formative years when I was like 16 15 16 17 it was like realizing that these movies that I'm watch that that are out there they're not the standard blockbuster stuff that I'm seeing, you know, there's sort of a whole other world out there that's really really special. And you think in 2007 2008 when all this was kind of going on, we had the release of There Will Be Blood and No Country for Old Men, two of the greatest mm-hmm. American pieces of cinema in, in modern history. You know, like not a, not a day goes by where me and you don't talk about There Will Be Blood <laughs> and No Country Possibly. for Old Men. Like, yeah. We, we <laughs> um, so, yeah. Do, do you like... Do you have anything to say about like films in general and what they mean to you? Like, as like to try and close off. Like, okay. I'm trying to I'm trying to give a bit of finale, like a finale kind of vibe to this. So, like, you know, me and you aren't Being ever going to win. Keen, we aren't ever going to win Keen Atomic. So maybe this is our chance to do an ending. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> um, I might have to kill you. <laughs> we had to. Um, so for me, I don't know. It's just it is the magic of of going to the cinema and just being in another world and just you know stepping into someone else's shoes for a while, and also being that I've been fascinated with old Hollywood for so long that I made, I, you know, I, I wrote a thesis on it. The faces, man, the faces. It's, you know, I, I wish I could go back in time and experience the face of Greta Garbo on the big screen for the first time. 
She's got a reference, people. She's got a reference. (laughs) Sorry. What? I said you called out Greta Garbo's name. I was expecting it at some point this episode. Yeah, well... Of course. Well, you asked the question, so... I did ask the question. Yeah. Yeah. What else were we talking about? I mean, you know, you have you have the face, you have Buster Keaton's face with the most one of the most beautiful faces ever. Quoted by Orson Welles, by the way. He said he did say that he was one of the most beautiful people to be photographed. And yeah, to, to go back in time and just to, to go, you know, being in the nineteen twenties and walking to that movie theater for the first time and just have those faces look at you from those big screens i think that would be magical and try uh, what we do i think is try to to recapture that and just every time we go to the cinema is it's a new adventure and you know understanding someone else's vision on screen and just telling a story and having voices heard and experiences because you can't experience everything as a human being you can just experience secondhand and use your imagination and and experience other people's imagination and i think that's what movies are about i think no other film i think a lots of films have tried to capture what it's like to be inspired by the movies the aforementioned babylon being one of them that i feel tried and failed a film that you know i've seen the fablemans i think did it in a very very interesting way You've seen Empire of Light, which I think does something similar, uh, apparently, where that tries to capture the experience of being inspired by the movies. I think, have you seen Belfast, the Kenneth Branagh movie? I have seen, I have seen Belfast, yeah. yes. So that movie, you know, that's the same kind of thing of like a film that tries to do that whole inspired by the movies and arguably isn't very successful at it. And I think that the only movie that really comes close to doing it well and to doing it in a way that really comes anywhere near to what it's like for someone like me or you to to be watching you know that feeling of seeing there will be blood for the first time or seeing jurassic park for the first time or for me all that jazz for the first time and then every subsequent viewing after the fact is cinema paradiso that final (laughs) don't 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 that final scene in cinema paradiso where he sat there and he's watching all those cuttings of all the kisses that had been cut. And it's this moment of magic. <laughs> I and... hate you. Stop it. So Nick, you want, Nick wants me to cry on, on, on the pot, on the podcast. That's what he wants to do. I've done it before. I saw so... that film and I could not stop bawling my eyes out at that ending. Yeah. Because I, I like I said, I, I think that I think for like, it is the purest, form of him like of what people's may people may say that that's an it's a real a manipulative way of doing it but or it's it's too emotional it's too melodramatic but i think for but me and so you beautiful. however really yeah for me and you have a very romantic idea of the movies like it's the purest form of it going back yeah. to watching going back to watching you know some of the george melier stuff through to keaton through to Orson and you know and 60s stuff the stuff in the 70s through to the blockbuster age and and you know like I mean you know looking at Jean-Pierre Leo's face as he turns to the camera on the beach I mean you know that yeah that 
there's there's something special there is something special to the to the movies and you know that's one of the beauties about having a platform like real talk that i've had you know for the last few months and what me and danny have got on keen atomic is that we we try and use that opportunity to talk about movies because there's nothing better than talking about movies that really <laughs> like in for our opinion that you know there's nothing not a better feeling than talking about movies and marveling at it and just marveling you know. at it and i'm hoping that you know me talking about my favorite movie is as kind of shown you everybody all that everybody's listening like how much like that be- it means to me and you know the reason why i've got danny on for this episode is because it, it's just one of the few people I know that has the same level as enthusiasm about cinema as I do. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm done. Cause I, you know, I could, I could, we could talk about this for ages, but I think we need to come to a close. Um, Danny, thank you. Thank you, you for coming welcome. on for this, this final episode. And um, I will make sure to be sending you the clip of Cinema Paradiso when we finish. Stop. Enough. Okay. <laughs> I have it in, you know, imprinted in my brain. You don't need to send me that clip. <laughs> um, yeah. For everybody that's listening and for everybody that has listened in the past, thank you so much for supporting Real Talk and my my show running of real talk and for all the feedback uh for all the guests that have come on thank you so much for joining me talking about all these you know films whether they were good or bad um danny's you know been my <laughs> five-time <laughs> co-host on this uh talking about the, the you know the films that we have talked about so you know thank you again to her for, again thank you again for tony for giving Thanks me the opportunity and um thank you for joining us for this episode of real talk i don't know when real talk is going to come back uh, in what form whether it will be going back to the old format where they had a different guest on uh different host guesting the podcast to talk about whatever random release that they they decide it's purely up to them uh, what they want to do and i really look forward to seeing what comes next um danny in the meantime where can we find you on the internet you can find me on Twitter at KinoJoan and my website is KinoJoan.co.uk although I haven't actually been adding any more content on there. I will be doing that shortly. And you can find me on Twitter at Nick S. Chandler. My other podcast that I do with Danny, Keenatomic, is on at Keenatomic. We are in the midst of recording our episodes for season four. We have a really, really great schedule lined up for season four. Really excited about all the films that we've got. Um, We've recorded a couple of episodes already. And, you know, I think it's something special that we've got really lined up for you, for everybody that wants to listen. So you can find us on any major, all podcasting platforms to do with that. And yeah, my website is superatomovision.com where, like Danny, I haven't uploaded anything in a while and probably need to get back on to doing that. So yeah, uh, thank you again, Danny, for coming on. Thanks for having me. Please subscribe to Real Talk and give the show a rating review on Apple Podcasts and wherever else they do ratings and reviews. And yeah, remember, uh, Real Talk is part of the We Made This Podcast Network. 
Uh, taste of the other shows can be heard in just a second, but for now, for myself and my guest, it is a goodbye and a thank you for listening. There's no business like show business like no business I know. Everything about it is appealing. Everything that traffic will allow. Nowhere could you get that happy. If I asked you to think about Japanese movies, what do you picture? Anime, no doubt. You think of the beautifully rendered works of Studio Ghibli. Maybe you picture Godzilla and his coterie of city-ravaging kaiju. Perhaps you see Toshido Mifune wandering the countryside and armed with only his wit and his blade. And I know you're trying not to think about the pale-faced ghosts with long hair and creepy noises. And maybe you're a fan of the exploitation type of cinema, where schoolgirls wield chainsaws and machine guns with abandon. My name's Perry Constantine. I'm an author and a teacher, and back when I was in college, I had the exact same image of Japanese films as you did. It was my love and interest in these movies that led me to move to Japan. Now, almost 20 years later, I'm still here and teaching classes about Japanese film. What I've learned in that time is that Japanese movies are so much more diverse than just anime or kaiju or samurai. Sure, those movies are fun, but by exploring the wide range of Japanese cinema, there's so much we can learn about Japanese history, society, and culture. That's why I started Japan on Film. In each episode, I'm joined by a different guest to help me spotlight just some of these excellent movies. We'll be watching the good, the bad, the popular, and the bizarre. Come along with us on a journey into the wide, wonderful, and sometimes very weird world of Japanese cinema. Listen to the Japan on Film podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit our website, japanonfilm.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.